The years have all passed, we've reached modern times The Nazis have come with their Nazi war crimes Yes, the power was there, the power was found Six million people have heard that same sound That old knock on the door, knock on the door Here they come to take Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast in this episode, I will be completing my examination of Mary, McCarthy, Mary McCarthy's novel, The Groves of Academe. Uh, this novel was published in, I believe it's in 1952. Yes, 1952. Um, and it is a story of academia. It's a story of life at a small college. And it's somewhat a story of McCarthyism, although it's not really directly a, a story of McCarthyism. It's really about how McCarthyism could be used and some of the hypocrisy of, of liberal progressive uh, colleges. Um, so there's a lot going on in this novel. It, it, the plot itself is fairly straightforward. We have a character, uh, Dr. Yeah, he's a PhD, Dr. What's his name again? Professor Professor Molke. Professor Molke is uh, was on a one year contract, and he gets news. I think it's pretty much in the first semester that he's not going to be renewed. His contract will not be renewed for the second year. A very very common enough experience of visiting professors these days. Um, Molke does not accept this, and he immediately works on finding a way to keep his job and his plan basically is twofold one is to is to claim that he was given certain assurances by the administration because of his wife's illness uh, that they needed like a certain amount of money to get established and and a two-year contract it would be required for them financially to come that's part of the that's a lie he never his wife's not sick he never got such a promise from the administration but he's got another level of of his plan, and that is to claim that he was once a member of, of the Communist Party and to claim that he was a target of essentially a witch hunt, a McCarthy-esque witch hunt, a Red Scare witch hunt, which seems an odd way to go about it in generally in the McCarthy era when people were being called out as communist, but at a progressive university like the one described in this novel, it's called Jocelyn. It's, it's based off a place that, that um, Mary McCarthy herself taught. Actually, in a literature department, like many of uh, her novels, there this is like a Romana Clef where it, it's just kind of a slice of life story, but it it uses characters from real life and and just kind of adapts them a little bit. Often she's in it or people she knows. So um, much of what she describes here is drawn from life. So it's it's a university, very much a small college, very much like the one she taught at. And, but as a progressive institution, they would not. They would not not fire someone, or they wouldn't fire someone because he had was a communist in the past. So this is basically his plan, and he begins to rally the department to his to his side. He starts with um, Domna, uh, a, a BA who's teaching there. She's teaches like French and Russian, and she's one of the good guys in the novel. Even though she she like most of these characters in the story are self centered, kind of looking out for her, her herself, uh, their selves. You know, she's basically presented as the good figure, especially in the first half of the novel. And she, although maybe anti-communist in her own way, she's coming from Russia. She she didn't like political witch hunts, so she sides with 
with Mulkay, and she talks with the other faculty in the department and gets them essentially to just stand up for, for Mulkay. They have a long debate over whether they should, whether he was a good professor, whether he was lax in his duties, what might it have been that got him you know, so he's not renewed. But she stands up for him, and eventually the department decides to to basically you know, talk to the administration and try to get him to keep his job. Uh, one professor, Alma, another literature professor, says she's even going to resign if he's fired, and she's you know, she really needs the job, so it's a big sacrifice for her. Uh, Mulkey has no problem using this, though. He, he certainly is, is a rather despicable character throughout much of the novel, not just in his lies, but in the way he's willing to use other people, use students, um, use, use friends, use, use his wife, uh, lie about his past, all these things. So, um, but, you know, that's more or less what happens in the first half of the novel is he gets this news and then... He, we, he learned a little bit about the past of the university, Mulcahy's past, but mostly it's about, that's, that's the essential plot of the first half of the novel. Uh, in this episode, I'm going to talk about the second half of the novel a little bit more, carry on these themes and, and see where the story goes. Thematically, it's kind of fairly consistent. There's not much that changes um, in the story uh, in terms of its themes. It's still dealing with corruption and pettiness and, and triteness within academia. It... it, it it actually pushes a little bit farther, making even Domna look like, you know, not entirely a, a saint. Uh, she's still a fairly good character. Um, and it's really funny at the end, actually. Even though much of this novel is funny, the twist ending, in a way, where Malke eventually gets the president of the school, the one who originally didn't renew his contract, fired, um, basically for being a McCarthyist. It's, it's quite... Or forces him to resign. Many so the person who ends up losing his job is the is the president, not the this horrible professor. Um, so, anyways, let's. Uh, what what else happens in the second half? Well, essentially, very early on, after they confront the the president, Mulkey is signed for another year. So basically, the school, the department, agree to carry him for another year at least. You know, if he can find another job or get on, get on his feet, figure out what he's going to do with his future. And so it won't be such an abrupt thing. Um, you know, it's not clear whether he'd keep his job. I get the sense at the end of this, he's going to keep his job for a long time at this university because he's, he's played this card so well and he's able to manipulate so many people. Uh, the other major thing that happens in the second half of this novel after that is resolved is a big poetry conference that uh, this, well, I wouldn't say big, it's a, it's, a, it's a poetry conference anyways, that this college is able to put together. And... And some interesting things happen at this poetry conference. It's not a great conference. It's always like second-tier poets and second-tier commentators on the poetry are able to come. But it's the best a poor university like this can do. Um, another theme that runs throughout this novel, and, and certainly in both the first and the second half, is how even the students, they're usually from rich families, they don't really care about their degree. They don't really care about learning that much. And, and you can tell that she... Uh, Mary McCarthy would have been someone who very much would have read a blog like, you know, Rate My Students. Uh, I don't know if that blog is still around. I, I think it changed names or something. But, the, you know, years ago there was this blog called Rate My Students. Of course, this is a pun on Rate My Professor where, you know, students can say what they want about professors and, and, and warn other students about good professors, bad professors, whatever. And some ac academics think that this was used to basically punish uh Good professors for a variety of reasons, whether make them, you know, whether they make students work hard, or you know if they're hard grader or whatever, and you know it was seen as kind of an unaccountable 
you know, calling out of, of faculty, and then faculty didn't have a way to respond, really. So this blog started out, Rate My Students, which is really just a complaining blog for faculty to, to talk about their students, and they have a bit of catharsis about that. But Mary McCarthy, you get the sense, would have really enjoyed that blog, because she doesn't think much of the students here who are mostly interested in gossip, mostly interested in doing anything but, but study. Um, but that's that. So um, a little bit of details about what happens in the second half. Well, the first chapter in the second half that I want to look at is called the Dep uh, Deputation. It's chapter eight. And this essentially is when two professors from the department, Domna and John Benkut, uh, both uh, faculty in the literature department, they go to the president and tell him, basically, we can't accept you not renewing the contract of, of Mulcahy. We're standing up for him. And they also report that Alm was going to resign. And they start to get a bit of the background. Of course, they still are under the impression that he was promised a two-year contract and that he was hired, at least in part, because of his past. You know, Because if he was a communist in the past, them hiring him would prove that they're a progressive, open, liberal institution and not not a reactionary, old-fashioned academia that, that could not accept any left-wing voices. Um, that's their impression. And actually, the, the president has an entirely different story about why he was not being, his contract's not being renewed, about the past and all that. So they start to learn at this point in the story that Mulcahy is kind of full of it. Um, not quite here. It comes clear later on in the story, shortly thereafter, that Mulcahy was lying to everyone. It's kind of all revealed after he gets his contract renewed. Um, but even a little bit before that, they, they, they find out and they still kind of go with it. They kind of said, okay, we'll just keep this guy around for one more year. Uh, we already kind of you know, stepped forward and we have to kind of follow through on this. Um, but the story they get from the president is very, very different from what they heard from Mulcahy. Um, for instance, no promise of a, of a two-year contract. Um, but also that it wasn't had nothing to do with his politics and he didn't seem that aware of his politics. It has... And actually, Mulcahy was never a communist. Uh, he might have been a little bit on the left, but he never was a card-carrying Communist Party member. Uh, what it really was about is he essentially was a bad investment and a bad professor. So the argument that they, they bring forward, the faculty, is a, is a bit of a humanistic one. And they actually call themselves the humanist faction in the, in the school. And that's really, they're the deputation of the, of the humanists. Uh, she says, Domna says, uh, Dr. Hoare, that is not our contention at all. I do not defend Henry as a humanist, but as a human being. And a distinguished mind, she threw in. The outstanding home de la letters of your faculty, Maynard popped on his plate. A human being, he mused? What do you mean, Domna? We're all human beings. I think at least until proved otherwise, he sighed. And Domna was startled by the heavy fatigue in the voice. This interview, she suddenly suspected, was an ordeal for him, which he had apparently undertaken on principle. I mean, Kathy's situation, she murmured, lowering her, her eyes. So, yeah, I misspoke. It's, she actually makes a distinction between helping him as a human being, as just as someone who needs a job, essentially, and needs to support his wife, and versus, you know, the humanist. But there's still this, uh, this suggestion that this is the, the humanist faction. Um, um, da, da, defending this, uh, this professor. Um, now, something in the subtext, well, actually, it's not really the subtext, it's, it's right there on the page, but of this conversation is that there's a lot of, despite being a liberal progressive institution, these people are perfectly willing to use racist language in front of each other. They're all white people talking, you know, and Domna's the one who actually 
calls one of them out on using the n-word rather than saying negro um, at one point and it, it's pretty despicable just more evidence that that these people are not that nice and they don't share the values that they claim to have um, but anyways the story we start to get from from Maynard Hoare who is the the faculty uh, or the pr 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 principal is first there was no promise of a guarantee in fact he urged Henry when he took the job for one year contract not to bring his wife and not to get really settled there that he didn't take that advice he did kind of settle himself in this community without having a secure job now the real reason his contract isn't renewed it's revealed by by Maynard Hoare is is really finances uh, he says Hen knows perfectly well knew it all along I took care to see that he should. I believe I can show you our letters explaining our position. Our budget for literature language doesn't allow another salary at the professional level, which is what Hen needs at his time of life with his family to consider. I could carry him as an instructor pro tem, but I couldn't promise him promotion or tenure. There were no vacancies higher up. I had my three full salaries, Aristide, Alma, Furness. Hen, for all his reading knowledge, isn't equipped to teach languages as you were at Domna, for instance. And Alma was when she used to give Goethe in German. Even at the instructional level, Hen has been nothing but a luxury for us. He gives a course that Howard Furness can give, and always has give, in Proust, Joyce, and Mann. And Furness, to oblige him, teaches the freshman introduction, which Hen ought to be giving and hasn't had the patience for. He gives another course in critical theory, for which at present two students are registered, one having dropped out at midterm. And of course, he has his usual two, two T's. For one term last year, he gave a course in contemporary literature, which turned out to be a replica of Proust Joyce Mann, and brought us a lot of complaints. The kids say Hen wouldn't teach the authors they were interested in, Hemingway, Farrell, Stein, Mailer. You know what I mean, the red-blooded American were authors, no offense. So this, uh, this, this picture he draws is simply, first, there's really not money to take him on full-time, which is what he wants and needs, and he's got a PhD, so he's going to want 10-year promotion, and that's not going to happen. And the other thing is he's just really a bad horrible professor like he can't keep students he teaches only one course essentially he doesn't he's not willing to teach the in, intro writing courses you know these guys i mean these kind of professors are, i think are common enough and many of them hang around and, and have their jobs but this guy had no um you know he just he took a job thinking he could get it and and thinking he could kind of exploit the situation to eke out a tenure track job or something at some point in the future he rolled the dice and he he failed and that's and and that's what the the president here is is um, saying. Now after all this, that's then that they bring up the the communism stuff and and he denies really knowing anything about about that either. So she uh, Domna eventually is asked by the president to give me like, give me one good reason to keep him and she. And she ends up saying, like, well, some students come to me and say that they like his course or they like his point of view of Joyce, and they seem to appreciate him. And that's basically what she can come up with. And the pre president says, okay, I'm going to think about it, right? Now, eventually, he's, he is going to um, renew the contract. And we find that in a later chapter that his contract is renewed and that the president does change his mind, at least find it, he finds enough money for another year for, for Mulcahy. Um, but that's that's all that really happens in chapter eight. But it's a really interesting conversation, and we see some degree of nobility and domna in standing up for this professor, um, despite 
all we know about him. Okay, chapter nine is called Discovered. And Discovered it's, is the chapter in which Domna and, and John, that John Bettencourt, the other um, professor who came to the office to speak up for him, essentially finds out that that he was lying about his wife's illness, lying about being a Communist Party member and all that. I mean, the Communist Party stuff is still kind of ambiguous and it becomes a plot point later in the story. But this is where it's revealed to them that that he's he's full of it. But it's also revealed that, that Henry is, is kind of delusional, uh, both academically and perhaps in personal life too, that he really is capable of lying to himself to such a degree that he's able to... Um, uh, actually believe these lies he's telling to keep his job, right? It's, it's like he's that far gone in a way. Yeah, overall, I mean, th this, this chapter makes Mulcahy look really, really bad in a lot of ways. Um, like one, he scolds these people who stood up for him for not like basically doing a good enough job and not really like, yeah, I don't, like he wanted somehow them to like, art, like present an argument or catch him out on a lie and really hang him, really crucify him. And it, and they didn't do that. You know, they had a decent kind of a nice conversation with the president. He wanted it to be like a, a fight, like a like a like a union negotiation between labor and management or something. He really wanted it to explode. And you know, you know, he says he, here he, at one point he says one direct question from either you and Maynard's goose would have been cooked. You had him on the ropes and you didn't know it. The bloody fool scared to death, Domini. He can't afford to have a char charge of bias made. His whole career will be straddling. Is a, a, The whole career he's straddling is, is at stake. He's a corpse, a well-preserved corpse, rotten with inner corruption. Um, and he kind of goes on that way. And it's, it's, you know, he's mad at these people who, for, for not, I guess, making a good enough case and not, like, setting up whore for, like, for what Mulcahy says is his hypocrisy. Um, he also is kind of scornful of his wife. He sees his wife at this get together doing like bourgeois things. And he, he feels he internally, he feels upset at his wife for betraying their anti-bourgeois lifestyle. This is something we've, we've seen before in Mary McCarthy's writings, this kind of ambivalence towards bourgeois life among radicals. Uh, we saw it certainly in the company she keeps and it's to a certain degree in the Oasis as well. Uh, this, you know, you have, academics, you have leftist academics, intellectuals, you know, who are struggling between their political values and the reality of, of living in a bourgeois life. And this is also a ca the case in the, in the Charmed Life, less political in that novel, but still how intellectuals who try to be countercultural end up being very conventional at the end of the day. It's actually this, this get together in which Domna basically figures out who Mulcahy is and that he's, 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 he's lying, you know, is, is interesting because one is Kathy gets drunk. This is Mulcahy's wife gets, gets quite drunk. And there's a lot of bickering between Mulcahy and Kathy, which Domna is witness to. And there's a lot of bickering between Mulcahy and Domna and all of this. So it's not even so much about she, she finds out exactly the truth about things. She just finds out what a despicable person he is by, by spending any time with him outside, outside the office. And his veneer is of, of being the proper professional uh, academic is, is revealed pretty quickly. So she, she leaves this and she goes to John Ben Coote's house and, and 
and begins to reveal her concerns to him. And part of what she reveals is that basically he's a bit of a psycho. That's the way she she kind of puts it to him, saying he's he's delusional. And that's that's what's kind of driving this conflict. And they're basically standing up. They get, they've put themselves in a the position of standing up for someone who maybe doesn't deserve their their loyalty. And she, and she expresses her regret of, of, of lying or being put in, being trapped into a lie and then having to back it up. She, she says, he threw ourselves on our pity. This was not an honest act. He lied to Maynard about Kathy and lied to us about the lie. Or is he lying to us now and she is healthy and it's all a fantasy that we believed? And now we are all in it. We are all in it lying for him. I lied this morning to the president. My students do not praise Henry. It is I who praise him to the students who sit with their faces so. I lied to him at his house two, three times. I lied to myself about him. And now what am I to do? Am I to lie some more, I presume? Uh, end quote. And, and she really is... is you know, feeling quite torn up about this. Now she's capable of lying as well, but that kind of comes up later in a, in kind of the the secondary plot that, that dominates the second half of, of the novel. Basically, what happens here is she decides she is not going to basically associate much with Mulcahy. She did what she did. She stood up for him in in the president's office, uh, lied for him. You know, saying there was fond feelings for him among the students, but she's you know, basically done with them. And, and she's, she just becomes more aware. It's, it's like that experience you have when when someone you care for or someone you, you're close with kind of reveals another side to, to their nature. And that's really ugly. It's a really ugly side. And that changes your whole interpretation of who that person is. And it's hard to kind of go back to that time when you didn't feel that way or you didn't know that about them. I mean, it happens in some, so often in our relationships. You know, it's that when the teenager or the, the child finds out their parents, you know, are capable of lying or deceitful or, or, or something like that. Um, and she's kind of bearing this all out to, to Ben Coot. And Ben Coot's kind of like, well, we already did it. And, and you know, Henry's not that bad or something. And, and she's like, no, I think, I think he is. And I think he's a little nuts, too. And she actually talks about his scholarship about, um, about you know, his, his, his professional work. And that, that it's kind of, he's a bit off his rocker is what she, she says about his work. He seems to even have, like, really weird ideas about Joyce uh, that Domna becomes aware of. She says... Um, his communist period, he says, was a ritual conversion symbolizing Joyce's baptism in the region of naturalism, the precursor. And the communists hate him because he transcended naturalism, just as they hate Joyce. Behind Joyce, you see, is your identification with Christ. Bloom was Christ, Earwicker was Christ, Henry Mulcahy is Christ, and the disguise of Bloom and Earwicker, the family men, the father's internal consubstantiation with the son. <sighs> I tried to assure myself. That all this is merely an allegory, a pastime of an indigenous mind that he uses to give form to his experiences, to console himself in a rather bitter way by the sense of repetition. But John, I'm afraid he believes it literally, just as you believe in incarn in incarnation. So, this is the the juxt the, the 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 you know the nature of his her conversation with John, both revealing her disgust at having kind of been possibly being lied to her her you know real. Revelation that this guy maybe shouldn't be a professor anywhere. Um, it's also highly implied in the previous chapter that he got this job largely out of pity um, by the by the president in the first place, and 
you know, because no one else would hire him and he needed the job and he has four kids and, the, and this wife who, you know, isn't working, possibly could be sick. So it, it, it's just a big mess. And then um, the, the intellectual side to it is, is interesting as well. You know, it's, you know, I, I, his, her, his ideas are so off the wall that Domina really, you know, finds it uncomfortable almost to have him in the department. So there's still four chapters in this book, and it's all about this poetry conference and, and the aftermath of that poetry conference. And, and it ties a little bit to Mulcahy's story, but it becomes much more Domna's story in the second half. Actually, this whole second half of, of the novel, it's mostly Domna's story. Mulcahy is just a background character. It's kind of the, the point of view almost shifts. Um, um, now, chapter 10 is called Mulcahy Finds a Disciple, and it's during this chapter that you see Domna basically is keeping her distance from from Molke, not wanting to have too much to do with him, seeing him basically as a toxic force. All right, so in this chapter, um, we really see the growing divide between Domna and Molke in particular, and actually it becomes quite um, contentious. And then you see Domna doing some of the the same distasteful things that we could accuse Mulcahy of doing. For instance, he she will attack Mulcahy, not directly, not, not officially in any, any sense, but through like kind of passive aggressively to her students by like attacking modern literature. Um, now the main thing that happens is this, this conference, this poet conference, and Mulcahy is really rejuvenated by this and he takes a lot of leadership in this. And it becomes a real point of conflict between Domna and, and Mulcahy. Uh, Mulcahy himself actually gets a, a bit of a protege. That's why the title is called Mulcahy Finds a Disciple. Um, and this also kind of emboldens him to expand his power. So he's trying to use this conference, it seems, to really ensconce himself in the university even more than he already has, now that his contract has, been, has, has indeed been renewed. Now, there's kind of an interesting dynamic in this chapter between Domna, Mulcahy, and, and this Ellison, this this protege of his, because Ellison is a radical traditionalist in poetry and art. Mulcahy is this modernist, a hyper-modernist, a Joycean, and Domna is actually, uh, she seems much more traditionalist herself, or at least more objective. Uh, she, her kind of hostility towards modernism comes, I think, a lot out of her conflict with, with Mulcahy. But she starts talking about the unholy alliance between the modern movement and tradition, which essentially is just a parallel for the alliance between Ellison and, and, and Mulcahy. So her intellectual integrity is, is, is even also being degraded by the realities of conflicts in the, in the department. So as the conference planning is, is going along, uh, they got the, the list of the poets who are going to attend. And then somebody, and I believe it's, it was Domna was behind this, uh, painted like in, in red on one of the bulletin boards and put up a sign that said, where are the poets of the masses? So this is really ironic because Mulcahy is planning this conference. He kind of put together the list and, and he was accused, or, or not, I guess he wasn't accused, but he was claiming to have been a Communist Party member before, right? So this is a sore spot for him, right? This ultra-modernist is someone, you know, a leftist. It's a progressive campus that's supposed to be open-minded and all that stuff. And then... There's no poet of the masses that's going to be at the, at the conference, right? And this actually, there's actually like an investigation and a, and a meeting about what poets were attended and, and, and how to deal with this kind of student protest. Apparently, it's a student protest. And, and Domna 
Or I know the mall case says something to Doma, like, you know, like this is just rubbish being regurgitated from the professors to the students and it's being, you know, it's just the, this rhetoric is being used. So it's actually someone's behind it, right? And Domna says that this is actually your kind of rubbish that's coming out of you that's, that's being um, sent back. She says, the one who fed them this rubbish is you. We have it from the students who heard the plan for the conference from your own lips in confidence. We did not seek this information. It was brought to us by the students who felt that you were planning, thought what you're planning was not fair to the poets and a bad thing for the college. They felt someone ought to be warned. And then, um, and then they engage in a very interesting discussion about the nature of modern poetry and representation. And in fact, this debate sounds quite modern and something we could have a conversation about today in this, this hyper-PC environment about how different groups would be represented in a conference um, like this. Right? Is it just going to be old white men, right? The, the classical poetry leader or, or not? Anyways, they, it gets, it's a good result, and eventually they do invite someone who's more of a poet of, of the masses, a more working-class poet. Um, but Henry confronts Domna about who initiated this whole investigation into the list, and this is where she betrays, um, I believe it's Alma. She says, I think it was Alma who uh, you know, initiated this investigation, when in fact it was her. So... Um, that's probably the worst thing Domna does in the entire entire novel. It's, it's not too bad, but it's um, it, it is, she is betraying some of her values there too. But more broadly, she's getting involved in the pettiness of, of this academic politics um, when she's been drawn into it, right? One way you can sort of read this whole novel, I think, is Mulcahy draws Domna in and corrupts her in a way. And although we just see this one slice, you know, the future uh, Domna might just become another one of these petty, uh, gossipy, selfish uh, intellectuals, right? When we first meet her, she's helping a student. She's tutoring a student one-on-one, -on -one, right? And that's um, and where she ends up is somewhere quite different. She actually has the most character growth in a negative way, right? Mulke started as a jerk. He ends as a, as a jerk. Um, anyways, that's chapter 10. It's a very interesting chapter, especially for the discussion about representation and as this, you know, where's the poet of the masses stuff. Um, chapter 11 is called What Would Tolstoy Do? And this is, again, mostly about uh, Domna's internal reflection on, on the change in her character as the conference nears. Um, now, a student, Sheila, we actually met her earlier. I think Sheila's the one that Mulke first told that he was being fired. But she, he, she goes to see Domna basically complaining about Mulke's growing uh, authoritarianism and, and tyrannical nature. Um, quote, according to this wide-eyed Sheila, some of the boys in her circle in her circle were slaves to Dr. Mulkey. He was coaching them to play a disruptive part at the poetry conference and running them ragged in the household so they had had no time to study, and they were finding themselves conditioned in all their courses but his. This gush of confidence imparted twice a week had in it something of awe and pristine wonder that had tempted Ms. Regenev to listen to her. At first, out of a sense of intellectual duty, to Sheila, Dr. Mulkey was a phenomenon like thunder from where she sought the adult explanation that would restore tranquility to her cosmos. And the child herself, in her timid way as Domna, torn between amusement and solicitude related to Alma and Constantine and the other faculty, had been groping towards understanding while holding tight to the rail of analogy. The boys revolving around Mulkey in sharp servitude, 
she breathlessly discovered reminded her of the fathers of Ulysses turned into swine by Circe's spell. There's other issues here. I think like Sheila's being forced to read Ulysses, and she's just she's just kind of bothered by this growing kind of cult uh, environment around Mulcain. Basically, he's using these students as as essentially slaves. So um, Domna goes and seeks out Alma for advice on on this. It's another. It's the second professor. It's the second conversation like this in the in the novel. The first was after. She first kind of realizes the truth about Mulke and, and talks to, to John. Now she's, she goes to see Alma uh, for advice. And Alma's not particularly helpful. I mean, he's basically defensive of Henry's uh, position as a faculty and, and doesn't side with the students in this situation. Even saying, saying at one point that the worst thing that could happen to her is she could be like, you know, is maybe Henry would fail her, but then she could just retake it over the summer and that'd probably be good for her, right? Kind of insulting the students at the same time. Of course, Domna is much more philosophical about it and she, she asked the what, the what Tolstoy do question, right? Of course, going back to those uh, Russian writers, um, going back to Dostoevsky and Tolstoy for um, moral and philosophical advice. Um, now she's bothered, I mean, certainly she's, She's upset about the thing Mulke doing, but she also feels bad about her own kind of selling off Alma to Mulke and, and give, bearing her false witness. And that's why she's pondering this, the, this ethical question. All right, so now we're getting towards the end of the novel. Chapter 12, The Poets Convene, basically covers the, the conference. Um, and it's, it, it's uh, Mary McCarthy goes into quite a bit of detail about the conference itself, the different poets who attend. The, the kind of speeches they give, the, the poetry they read and all that, and the back and forth and the audience. And it's, it's kind of an interesting description, even like where they stay in the logistics of a conference in a small town. Apparently they weren't going to hotels, at least they didn't have money or something. So they, they stay in different faculties' houses and, you know, they're, they're kind of drinking at night. The, the, you know, all the things you would expect at an academic conference like that is detailed here. And it's a fun little short story uh, in its own right there. Now, the highlight is when this proletarian poet finally comes and, and gives his talk. And this guy's name is Kiag, and, and he says something like to, to about Mulke in public, like, I remember you from when we were communists, you know, in youth or something, right? And so this kind of reintroduces this question of, of Mulke's loyalties or, or if he was a communist or not, right? And it kind of throws a wrench into this this extension of his of his contract again right and so then the last chapter um chapter 13 a tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide that's the the name of it right? that must be some poetical reference but domna and john and the and dr hoare the the president of the school have a conversation about this and you know, because it seems that this he's kind of been outed as a communist by this by this poet, by this this guy at the conference. And um, and here's what he says. He says, if basically. Well, they, they approach him on it and he replies, basically, it was politically impossible to make, you know, to make it about his former communist party membership, if true or not, right? That's all, it's very dubious. Um, apparently he never was a member. But he said, I couldn't bring it up to the trustees when trying to get this extra funding for this, this additional contract. He says, 
my dear, it was a very hot potato. I'm an administered domna. Your people were backing him, some of my best teachers. I had no belief or wish to believe that Hen was a communist. I could hardly reinstate him on that basis. That's not the kind of argument you use on the bursars or the trustees. I chose to ignore the question. What was relevant to my purpose was your feeling, yours and John's and Kantowitz and Aristides and Alma Fortunes. If you backed him, you left me with no choice. I respected your opinion, but not enough, apparently. Um, so, But this exposure, public exposure of, of this possible communist affiliation complicates it. Now, it was kind of a harmless conflict, you know, uh, comment, but if taken the wrong way, it could... Uh, damage the school's reputation or whatever. Um, so they bring in this guy, this Keog, they kind of drag him into the office and get him to name names. They actually, it's kind of funny. It's almost like a, it's a parody of, of the, the kind of the McCarthy winch hunts in a way as we got this, these professors and this, this kind of somewhat bumbling uh, bureaucrat, the, the, the president, you know, trying to investigate, trying to get the get this guy to name names, and they drag him in. And this guy's like an experienced leftist, like an old wobbly, an old member of the IWW and a Communist Party member, and things like that. So he was, you know, he wasn't going to fall for these guys. So it's kind of comical. It's really kind of fun to read. But they they call him in, and they basically say, you know, you know, what's the truth here? Was was he a, a party member or not? And and he he says, you know, I he wasn't. Right? He he ends up telling him a story. Again, it's not clear if it's true or not, right? This is the kind of guy who knows better than to talk to authority about someone's party affiliation. But he just sort of says, yeah, you know, I knew him back in the day, but, you know, he was never a Communist Party member. We, I, I was supposed to recruit him, but we didn't. So it was all kind of a joke, right? So after this meeting, which is, of course, inconclusive, um, he calls this Kyog, this this proletarian poet calls Mulke and tells him, you know, they were asking about if you were a party member or something. And Mulke kind of barges into the president's office and accuses him of like being a McCarthyist, a witch hunt, which obviously he hasn't been really at all. He's kind of this comedy of this, this farce of a McCarthy trial here. Um, but Mulke uses it to get back finally at his tormentor, the guy he wanted to get back at all along. And eventually this forces him to resign. And the final scene is between Domna and, and Dr. Hoor. And I, no, John. I think it's John and Dr. Hoor are talking, and he tells why he had to, had to resign. So that's, that's the novel. That's The Grows of Academe. So, um, yeah, let me give you my, my overall thoughts on this. So like um, her other novels, like The Company She Keeps and The Oasis, we see here uh, McCarthy's deep interest in in kind of the the facade of of the leftist intellectual, right? It, it's in all and the kind of the, the reality and the idealism of them. Maybe it's it's taken a little bit more seriously in the Oasis, even though that's kind of a funny no novel. That's the whole focus of it, right? Is the pettiness. This very much feels like that, but you don't have really leftists. You have someone who's just claiming to be, but none of these seem to have any leftist bone uh, like any leftist ideals behind what they use for for show, right? Now, there are characters like that in the Oasis, too, like the, the realist faction in the Oasis. Um, actually, it's, I think in the company that she keeps, we got the most authentic leftist there. Um, the main character, obviously, and that that uh, writer that she, she, she meets in the one chapter called Portrait of the Intellectual as a Yale Man. Those seem to be real leftists, but they were conflicted by their desire to be part of bourgeois 
society, right? Um, so there is also the theme here of counterculturalism and the difficulty of people in this kind of bougie life to, to really authentically be countercultural. Uh, that's something, especially in that scene uh, where they're in the house and we see uh, Mulcahy's wife engaging in kind of bougie party preparations and Mulcahy's mad at her for that, for, for not being sort of cultural enough, but he's still very conventional and, and kind of um, kind of gross actually, very patriarchal for instance. So he's he's very also very much of, of middle class life, and the whole plot is driven by the fact that he's trying to maintain a certain level of standard of living with his four kids and his wife, and the only way he can do that is by by keeping this job, which he you know he he, pull, he does he manipulates everyone he can to to get that. Um, I mean, overall, like the, as a depiction of academia, I think this novel is really really interesting, and if anyone has grievances against academia, I think they're going to find a lot to love in this novel because it does speak so much about the, um, just the, the shallowness, the pettiness, the party bickering, the kind of conflicts that drive departments apart. It happens all the time. Um, I've seen it, um, you know, if you've spent any time in, in higher ed, you know, especially if you've gone to graduate school, you've seen this kind of thing and you see how personal the infighting is and how actual academic debates take a center, uh, take, Take a, are put on the back burner, right? And it really comes to a peak in this conference, which is supposed to be a discussion about poetry and its limits and, and whose representation of it all. But it's all a way for these people to fight their personal conflicts out. Um, obviously, McCarthyism is a theme of the novel, but it's it's all of a, it's like such a it's so preposterous here. It's a it's a farce. It's a farce of McCarthyism, especially that interrogation scene at the end. Uh, but the whole thing, right, it's, it's, it's based on a lie. A guy's just using the Communist Party affiliation, which isn't even real, to, to try to get support for him to keep his job, right? Um, really great. Uh, Well-written, like all of McCarthy's novels, really sharp prose, fun prose. Uh, you know, the academic bakes, b debates here are wonderful. Um, she used them a lot in the Oasis and in the company she keeps as well, and she continues to do that. You're going to see it in The Charmed Life as well. If, if you just enjoy seeing intellectuals discuss ideas or, or philosophize, it's here. Now, a lot of it is it's kind of shallow, of course, but when Domna's doing it in this novel, it, it comes off as an authentic debate. You know, some, a smart person, a well-educated person trying to use ideas of others to navigate her own moral quandaries. It's, it's quite interesting. And, it's, and, and McCarthy really, it, you get the sense that McCarthy really was in this environment a lot and maybe somewhat annoyed by it at times, but she's able to write this um, dialogue quite well. If you don't like that kind of stuff, though, this, this novel may, may drag. Um, it is, in many ways, very comedic. Uh, you know, the... I mean, the whole thing's kind of preposterous. It's like the Oasis in that way, that what happens here is um, so stupid at times. But it's taken so seriously by the people in it, right? Like in the Oasis, it was like the the, the berry picker, right? That breaks up the community almost, right? Here's just the the non reassignment of a mediocre visiting professor uh, uh, leads to all these these uh, these events. So, anyways, uh, I like it. I, I think this is an interesting novel. It's it's not my favorite. I, I still think the favorite of mine here is the company she keeps, um, but. 
yeah, I'm enjoying these novels very well. And this one, uh, as the other two, I find a lot to like in it. So anyways, that's my thoughts about uh, The Growth of Academe. This in the previous episode will constitute my overall, my review of it. And yeah, I, I think um, check it out if you're interested in, in a novel poking fun at, at academic culture. So, but let me know what you think. I probably missed a lot. There's, there's a lot going on in the novel that I didn't talk about or I, I, I went over pretty, pretty quickly. So if there's anything you think I missed or misinterpreted or, or got wrong or, you know, just let me know. Um, be part of the discussion. Uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, in the next episode, I'll be, getting, I'll, I'll be looking at McCarthy's next novel or the next novel in this anthology, which is called A Charmed Life. This, again, takes up intellectual types. This time it's artists. It's not professors or philosophers or poets, uh, but artists. And they're living on kind of in an artist kind of neighborhood, kind of a bohemian kind of colony of, of artists. And it's about a woman who who runs into her her first husband when she's there. Um, and she wants to have a child. She, she somehow thinks a child can save her faltering marriage. She thinks moving here might be able to save her marriage too. Um, so it, mostly this novel is about artists living together and, you know, different families of, of artists and, and the lives they, lives they live. It's quite fun. It's quite nice. Um, tragic end, but, but it's really pleasurable getting to that tragic end. So I look forward to talking about A Charmed Life with you. If you have access to it, please, please um, check it out and, and read it and, and let me know what you think when I, when I, put up that episode shortly. So thanks for listening. Uh, uh, thanks for sharing your time with me as I think my way through these novels by Mary McCarthy. Uh, I'll see you next time with, with part one look of Look over of the oceans, look life. over the lands, look over the leaders with the blood on their hands, and open your eyes and see what they do. When they knock over their friend, they're knocking for you with their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more with their knock on the door, knock on the door. Here they come to take one more.